A reading from Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The word of the Lord. There are few happy marriages in English literature. Even in Shakespeare's sunniest comedy, As You Like It, Rosaline says to Orlando, Men are April when they woo, December when they wed. Maids are May when they are maids, but the sky changes when they are wives. Marriage is many things, but it is anything but balmy. Marriage is a burning joy. Marriage is a glorious burden. Marriage is humbling defeats and exhausting compromise. To the very end, picture the old married couple lying there in bed, tired from the day. The wife whispers to her husband, when we were young, You used to hold my hand when we first slide down. So slowly and dutifully, the old husband reaches and finds her hand. Then his wife says, when we were young, you used to snuggle right up next to me when we first went to sleep. So a bit more slowly, he scoots and creaks till he's spooning his bride. Then she says, when we were young, you used to nibble on my ear. He throws the covers off, lurches himself out of bed. She says, rather hurt, where are you going? He says, to get my teeth. (laughs) Marriage is a grind. (laughs) To the end. And yet, there is no other human relationship more transformative than marriage. Why? Because God designed it. Why? Because He wants marriage 
to be the preparation for heaven. Let me, let me explain that for just a minute. Did you see how Paul quoted Moses and back in Genesis? He said that, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will be united in one flesh. And then Paul picks it up from there and he said, that is a profound mystery. Uh, I love the Greek there. It's mega mysterion. Mega. And then Paul puts the, the purpose spin on it when he says, I'm not talking just about human marriage. I'm talking about Jesus and His church. The point, the point is that the way that we grow and love in our marriages is preparation for when we are married to God in heaven. Every one of you who's a follower of Jesus is a married person. You are married to God. And that is your highest priority. And the marriage relationship now is to prepare you for the marriage then. Jesus said in heaven there is no earthly marriage. Why? Did He mean there's no marriage in heaven? He did not. What He means is that marriage is all heaven. And all of heaven is marriage. Mm. The purpose of marriage is growth and gospel that prepares you for your marriage in heaven. Think about that. Welcome to Modern Family. We've entered this new series. We're over the next eight weeks. We're going to be talking about marriage, parenting, divorce, sexuality, singleness. I want to say two introductory comments about this whole series. This, number one, will be arguably the most painful series we've ever done at Waterstone. Painful. I mean, who of us has not been hurt in a relationship? Hurt by our spouse? Disappointed by our parents? Crushed by a, a failed marriage? Crushed by a failed romance? Who of us has not been hurt and every week you're going to come here and we're going to pick at your scabs on your soul? Some of you here this morning desperately want to be married. And here we are talking about marriage. Some of you who are single, this is going to be dreadful the next three weeks. I want to say as one of your pastors who loves you, don't hide. I want to say that tears are good in a worship service. I would argue that those tears are the Holy Spirit opening your soul. We all know that pain is part of the process of growth. We all know that confession opening about the pain is the beginning of the healing. Don't hide Express your heart and your tears. That's the first step that leads to the vital step. The vital step is to have Jesus love you and let you know that He's with you and that He's caring for your soul. How does that happen? What's going to happen today? At the end of our service, we are going to have communion when we invite you to Jesus' table. And there's going to be two people at each station. They're going to give you the elements, the bread and the cup, and you'll dip one in the other. 
but they're going to at some point look you right in the eye and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the cup of Jesus' blood shed for you. And that look that they give you, it's not their eyes. It's Jesus' eyes. We are the body of Christ. And them looking you in the eye is Jesus' eyes saying to you, I know you, and I love you, and I forgive you, and I'm with you. Pain is part of the process. Confession is part of the healing to the vital step when you apply and appropriate what Jesus has done so that you get first love, which enables you to love everyone, especially your spouse. Don't hide. Second thing I want to say is that this series has a much larger purpose than just us getting some good advice for our marriages or us getting some good advice for living single or good advice for recovering from divorce, whatever it is. If you get some things there, great. But I want you to know that's not the main purpose. The main purpose of this series is to help us become God's family together. And you know what that means? That means that the next three weeks, those of you who are single... You need to be here. Why? So that you can walk in the shoes of married people. Why? So that you can love them and talk to them. And you know what? Half a ministry is just showing up. You need to show up for everyone in this church even though they're in a different station of life than you. So you singles, you be here the next three weeks to support married people. And you married people sure better be here when we talk about divorce and singleness and sexuality. You've got to be here. Why? Because you're family. And family shows up. Are you hearing me? Show the heck up. Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. I want to talk about the two purposes of marriage from our text. And I don't mean to oversell this, but I think those of you who are married, if you can hold on to these two purposes, it just might keep you married. And those of you who are single and wanting to be married, there is great wisdom in what we're about to share together as you think about being married. Who you look for, how you connect, how you prepare and what your expectations are. The two purposes of marriage lead to one big idea. Are you ready? I'm really convinced of this. Listen. The most important thing about your marriage or your thinking about marriage, the most important thing is how you think about marriage. Those of you who are married, the most important thing about your marriage is how you think about marriage. Why are you married? What are the purposes? Let me just lay them out for you real quick right now because I want you to take them home. And so repetition will help. The first purpose of marriage we're going to talk about is growth. You're in this marriage to grow and become more like Jesus. Second purpose of marriage, gospel. 
You were in this marriage so that other people in the world looking at your marriage might experience the Gospel. You're in this marriage so that you can help your spouse experience the Gospel. And we'll explain that when we get there. First purpose of marriage? Growth. Second purpose of marriage? Gospel. Hold on to that. We'll unpack those in a minute. First, I want to talk about the state of matrimony in our culture. Pulse. In a word, the state of marriage in American culture is decline. Some leading indicators quickly. The divorce rate since 1960 is up. It has almost doubled in the last 50 years. Various studies, it's somewhere between 40 and 50% of all marriages end in divorce in our country. And frankly, the church is not much different. A little lower, not much. Divorce rate up. Marriage rate down. If you took a snapshot in, in the culture in 1960, 72% of all people were married. You take a snapshot in our culture today, it's down to 50% of people in our culture are married. The researchers give two main reasons for the decline of marriage. The first reason is economics, especially since 2008 and the recession. More and more people are not married even though they're living together because they just can't afford it to either get married or to live the married life. The second reason, and we've alluded to it, is the increasing rate in cohabitation. People don't value marriage as much and they just live together. And thus the marriage rate is down. And we'll talk more about that next week some. Divorce rate is up. Marriage rate is down. And I think another very interesting survey shows that the happiness rate is down. In 1960, 75% of couples said they were very happy in their marriage. Check the box. Very happy. Today, that is down to 61% of couples check the very happily married box. Marriage is in decline in our culture. I'd like to submit to you three reasons. I'd love to sit down with you for coffee for this, and maybe we should sometime. I have three theories on why marriage is in decline. First one is because the historical vision of marriage has changed. It used to be until recent times that when people got married, they saw marriage as the primary way to build flourishing families. And flourishing families are the primary way to alleviate poverty, uh, lack of education, lack of health care. Marriage was the primary way to launch values into children and children into society. In other words, until recent times, you got married, but you always had an eye on God who wanted you to stay married, and you had an eye on society which said that if you stay in this marriage, it will be good for your children, which will be good for society. Marriage was seen as part of the common good. So it didn't even cross your mind that, well, we're going through a rough patch, but marriage was, or divorce was kind of always the last option. That has changed. That has changed in our culture. People no longer would stay married because God wants them to or because it's good for society. People tend to stay married because they're happy in the marriage. It's a a, a me kind of focused marriage that if you're giving me what I need and I'm giving you what you need, we'll stay together, we'll be happy. There's not much thought given to anything outside of that. Let me say it this way. It used to be that we married for us. Today, we marry for me. There was an interesting time, uh, piece in the New York Times a couple years ago. 
The notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain valued goals. That's from Tara Parker Pope. The historical vision of marriage has changed. It's no longer about us and society and God. It's about me and my needs. The second reason I would suggest to you the marriage rate is in decline is uh, because of what we're going to call the myth of compatibility. There was an interesting study done at Rutgers University, uh, the National Marriage Project by Barbara Defoe Whitehead and David Papineau, where they interviewed thousands of men, across, single men, across America, asking them, why are you waiting to get married? And then the byline of the study was, I'm waiting to find the perfect wife. Now, it's a very interesting study. You can go online, and it's at the National Marriage Project. But I want to give the top two answers as to why men are waiting longer to get married in our country. The number two answer is they are waiting to find someone who is sexually attractive, or sexually, sexual chemistry and physical attraction. Now, we don't have time to unpack that one. We don't have time to talk about how our pornographic culture has weakened marriage. We don't have time to talk about the crushing expectations of women and their body image in our culture. Have you watched The Bachelor lately? God, I hope that's not in the cultural time capsule we leave behind. The number one reason why men are waiting longer to get married in our culture is what they call compatibility. And here's what they mean by compatibility. Quote, I want someone who will fit into my life. Quote, I want someone who won't ask me to change. Quote, for me, compatibility means that they will not ask me to change. So let me see if I got this right. When it comes to marriage, what men, according to this study, are looking for is someone who's fun, intellectually stimulating, sexually attractive, and won't demand a lot from me. they're going to be waiting a long time can I say something about that that myth of compatibility there's no such thing as compatibility not like that 
Am I saying that as you're dating and as you're looking for a, a partner to marry that you, you should find someone who has common interests? Of course. Am I saying that they should have character that you respect? Of course. Are they saying that there even should be you know, some attraction there? Of course. But someone who can fit into my life Someone who won't demand that I change? I love this quote by an ethics professor at Duke, Stanley Hauerwas. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This is men and women now, right? The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. (laughs) It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he will, she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we've entered it. The primary, this is a great line. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Mm-mm. It's true, isn't it? You're married 50 years. You're going to be married to the same name but five different people. <laughs> you are. There's the, there's the no kids season and there's the kids season and there's the no kids season and there's the grandkids season. There's the retired season and then you're dead. I mean, there's... <laughs> I've always felt that Thomas Cranmer really made a mistake in the Book of Common Prayer when he gave us the traditional vows to to love and to cherish in sickness and in health he left one out in sickness and in health and aging and boy i'm telling you the things that we value going into marriage like number two sexual attraction and physical appearance just give it a while just give it a while The myth of compatibility. The truth is you will be married to the same name five different people. Third reason why marriage is in decline. So the historical vision has changed for marriage. The myth of compatibility has grown in our culture to be a a humorous thing, really. But the third is what Ernest Becker in his great book, The Denial of Death, calls apocalyptic romance becker was an atheist but even he was a student enough to see or he was a student enough to see sorry that slammed atheists and i did not mean to do that as an atheist he was astute enough to see that when you pull god and heaven out of a culture those longings are still there because from God in heaven, what do we get? We get our self-identity. We get our hope for the future. We get our morality. All those things are still there. We still long for them. Then when you pull God and heaven out of a culture, you still want self-identity. You want morality. You want hope. Where do you get them? Well, in our culture, you get them from 
apocalyptic romance. What does that mean? That means that you go around, whether in your marriage and your marriage is stale, you're thinking, or whether you're single, you go around looking, I need to find that one person. And when I find that one person who will meet all of my needs, I will be happy. Yeah. Really? Can one person be God to you? I'm telling you, if you put the crushing expectations of that person meeting every need of your heart and making you happy, you will not only crush that person, you will destroy your marriage. Apocalyptic romance kills marriages. So those are the reasons... Oh, I had a quote. This is really good. We, we can't skip this. This was interesting. Esther Perel, any of you heard of her? She's the new Dr. Ruth therapist in New York City. She's actually an academic, and she's doing research on... Uh, there's a great article in Slate magazine called Why We Cheat, and she's interviewed hundreds of couples that adultery has entered their marriage, and she's researching, why did you cheat? And what's amazing about the research is that most people, close to 90% of the people who have cheated still love their spouse and want to stay together. So why do people cheat? People cheat not because they've grown out of love with their spouse. They cheat because they've grown out of love with themselves. That person, for whatever reason, isn't helping them become the person they want to be. Listen to how she puts it as a result of the research. She says, what's changed is we expect a lot more from our relationships. We expect to be happy. We brought happiness down from the afterlife, first to be an option and then a mandate. So we don't divorce or have affairs because we are unhappy, but because we could be happier. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I can have this. It allows people to finally pursue a desire to feel alive. Very often, we don't go elsewhere because we're looking for another person. We go elsewhere because we're looking for another self. It isn't so much that we want to leave the person we are with as we want to... <laughs> that, this is a great... As we want to leave the person we have become. We're expecting that person to meet our needs. And when they don't, we're going to keep looking. Those are the reasons why I believe marriage is in decline. Now let's talk about the purposes and the purpose of this marriage so that our marriages aren't in decline. I think God has a, a different picture of marriage. And I think He has different purposes for marriage. And I believe because God designed marriage and in every historical millennium, it, marriage has always been the center of society. I believe it will continue to be. Why? Because it works. Why? Because God designed it. So the problem I submit to you is not the institution. The problem is how we think about the institution. So how should we think about the institution of marriage? First purpose is you look at our text that Ginny read earlier by the way this week is a broad overview we're just taking two things out of a, a broad bird's eye look at this text next uh, two weeks Nick and I are going to unpack this text and pull everything out of it so hang in there and, and more practical application next week but if you look at the text Paul is outlining kind of defining the roles of husband and wife in a marriage and he's saying wives submit to your husband and thank God Nick picked the straw to preach that in two weeks. <laughs> get here early. Get a seat. Week three. Submission. 
But notice Paul's point is that as a wife engages the marriage, she is submitting. And what happens is when she's submitting, she begins to look like Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, of whom it says, though He was equal with God and had every right of God for the sake of the Father's glory and purpose, He laid down His life and emptied Himself to accomplish the Father's plan. When a wife engages marriage, she is amazingly like Jesus. The purpose of marriage is to help you grow to be like Jesus. And it's the same for husbands. It says in the text, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He laid down His life. He gave Himself up. Why? Death to His own interests so that His wife, His bride, could be radiant, holy, and blameless. He died to Himself and loved His wife and gave her everything she needed to be holy. When a husband engages his marriage, he has never looked more like Jesus. Okay, it gets really important now. The purpose of marriage is to help you become more like Jesus. Get this. This is real. Marriage is not a human invention to make you happy. Marriage is God's design to make you holy. How does it work? Glad you asked. Marriage brings two people into the closest, most permanent, inescapable contact of any other relationship. Marriage... It unveils the shadow parts of your heart where it's hard for you to love. Marriage tests the direction of your love because we're not naturally other-centered. Marriage puts your human weakness completely on display from lint in your belly button to soiled underwear to morning breath and morning moods. Marriage is overwhelming at first because each of us brings into that marriage our pride and our anger and our controlling tendencies, and our fear, and our huge craving for attention and to be liked. And all of that gets brought into the marriage. Now in the past, your parents have tried to point that out to you. But what did you do? You moved out. And in the past, your friends have tried to point that out to you. And what did you do? You moved on. Now you're married. Guess what? You're stuck. Marriage is designed to take you by the scruff of your neck, turn you around and say, look at these things. Let's get to work. That's what marriage does. Makes you more like Jesus. Marriage is like a bridge over a stream. You're looking at it, you look up close and you see, whoa, there's some cracks there. There's some structural defects. But you step back from it and it looks good. I mean, those things, you can't even see them unless you're really up close. But you're looking at that bridge and now a 10-ton Mack truck's coming to that bridge. What's going to happen when that 10-ton Mack truck gets on that bridge? Boom! Right? Why? Did the Mack truck create those weaknesses? No. The Mack truck revealed those weaknesses. My, my friends, your spouse is a 10-truck Mack truck driving right down the middle of your heart. 
and it's going to expose your structural defects, what are you going to do? Marriage reveals brokenness in us. But marriage also reveals beauty in your spouse. Because there's one other thing I want to remind you of here. You are, if you're married, you've married, or, or if you want to be married, you will be married to someone who the, the Bible says was made in the image of God. Now, we like to think that we're really close to God when we're looking up at the stars. We like to think we're close to God when we see the Bronco sunrise here in Denver. But I'm telling you, you have never been closer to God than when you're lying right next to a person of whom God says, I made that person in my image. That person is mini-me. Look in the mirror. Do you want to see how much work you need to do? Your spouse will tell you. And your spouse was made in the image of God. It's a mirror. Get used to it. You know what I want to say to those of you who are married right now? And I understand some of this could be very painful. And I don't want to just step on that pain. We'll pick some of that up next week as well. But for most of us, I think you need to hear this word from this text when it comes to marriage and it being growth. Buck up. In your marriage, buck the heck up. What would you sign up for? A beauty contest? I mean, this is real stuff here. This is God preparing you to be married to Him. You thought that would be easy to fix you? Buck up! Don't quit! It's a process. And because that person is made in the image of God, they could change too. You are already married to the someone who's better. Look at them. They're sitting right next to you, married people. Don't quit. Buck up. It's good pain. Mm -mm. But if that's all marriage was, <laughs> bridge busting uh, wouldn't be nearly so popular. There's a second purpose of marriage, which is gospel. So when Paul says, I'm not talking about human marriage, even though I've just talked about it for the longest passage in the Bible, I'm really talking about Jesus and the church. What's he mean? What's he mean is that our human marriages put Jesus' love on display so that when outsiders look at your marriage, they see Jesus. You are a walking testimony of how Jesus loves us. And it gets better. Not only are you a walking testimony of Jesus' love to the outside world, you are also in your marriage a walking testimony of how the gospel helps us as individuals. You are helping your spouse believe the gospel. What do I mean? Let's just take one small area of, mar of a marriage. Words. How we talk to one another. In our marriage, well, we all know how words hurt. We can all think of situations in our childhood or, or even recent days when we've been hurt by words. And we know how powerful that is. We know how it hurts. And especially painful are those words we say to ourselves and what we believe about ourselves painful 
Now you're married. And in this marriage comes someone now with this incredible weapon of love who has the power to rebuild your identity and to a large extent redeem your past. How? Well, they keep saying things to you like, I love you. And I know you. And I believe in you. And and you're beautiful. And I forgive you. And I'm not quitting on you. All those things that God says to us, we say to one another. And we can rebuild one another with our words. It's a powerful thing. And it's much more powerful because of who's saying it. There are no more powerful words that can come between two individuals than one's from one spouse to another. Why? Because the spouse knows everything. He's seen the belly button hair. He, he lent, he's seen you do some amazingly hurtful things. She has heard you say some incredibly stupid things. And yet, she says to you, I love you. I believe in you. I'm not going anywhere. That's the Gospel. That's exactly what Jesus said to us. You've hurt me, but I love you. I believe in you. And I'm not going anywhere. That's Gospel. Jesus saw us in a bad state, laid down His life, became one of us, died for our sins, rose from the dead to take us home someday. Hear this. This is really good. If you're married, your job in the marriage is to help prepare your spouse for heaven through sacrificial service to them now. That's why marriage is a sacrament. It's an act of worship. You are doing it not just for you two. You are doing it for Jesus Preparing your spouse for Him. Can that keep you in it for another day? I want to put one more quote up there. This is it. This power of healing love in marriage is a miniature version of the same power that Jesus has with us. In Christ, God sees us as righteous, holy, and beautiful. The world tells us our faults, and we know they're there too. But God's love for us covers our sins. And His opinion of us is the only opinion that counts. Your job is to own and share Christ's opinion of your spouse every day moment i'm telling you this has totally radically changed the way i love my jan my job is to help my wife experience what jesus thinks about can't do that in my own strength i can't i could how do you do that i'll tell you in order to love like that you have to have 
a first love. You have to have a prior love. Now, there's no other human relationship quite as good for helping us experience love than marriage. Marriage is to know and be known. Marriage is to love and be loved. But I have some bad news for you, and I want you to think about this. Every relationship you have will disappoint you. Even your marriage. Even if it's a good 50-year marriage, it will ultimately disappoint you. Do you know why? Because one of you is going to die first. No relationship can fully meet the needs of a human soul. And if you expect it to, as I've said, you're killing it right now. You need first love in your heart to love everyone, especially your spouse. First love. And what's the first love? The first love is right now. Jesus extending His hands to you. Your name is on His palms. He has scars in His hands from His love for you. He laid down His life for you to forgive your sins, to take away your shame and your guilt, and to promise you a marriage to Him that will never end in heaven. Your past is gone. Your future is secure. And right now with these hands, He's carrying you. That is first love. And when you have that love, you can love anyone, even your spouse. Do you have the first love? Right now, it's an opportunity to come and get it. We're going to have communion. I'd like the servers to get up and go back and get the elements. In a moment, I'm going to give the words of institution. But what I want to say to you right now is if you've come a thousand times before or you're coming once more, or if you're coming for the first time, Jesus says, I want you to come. And remember, the eyes in which you look that are handing the element are His eyes. And He's saying to you, I know you. I love you. I forgive you. When you have that love, you can love everyone, especially your spouse. Come and get that love. You know, in the early church, they called what we're about to do the love feast. Come to the love feast. Get the love you need so that you can give the love you want. If the servers would take their stations, receive the words of institution. Our Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, sat down at the supper and He took the bread and He broke it. And He said, this bread represents My body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember Me. And in the same way, after the supper, He took the cup and He said, this cup represents My blood it is the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Take some time and be with Jesus and talk to Him. And again, whether it's the first time or the thousands, come and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Let Him look you in the eye and get the love you need. When you're ready, come and be with Jesus.